What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is the long-awaited sit-down with Ben Silverman, former chairman of NBC, my mentor. I worked for Ben for seven years. We had talked about doing this for months, and we were finally able to pull it off. But before I get into the interview with Ben, a quick announcement. Real Screen 2017 is right around the corner in Washington, D.C., I am going to be hosting a live recording of the podcast, and my special guest is none other than Elliot Goldberg, the man that oversees Unscripted for both AMC Network and the Sundance Channel. So Elliot is going to be my guest. We are doing it Monday at the conference at 345. Uh, So If you listen to the show, check it out. It's going to be the first time we've done one of these. I'm super excited. Now, Ben Silverman, my guest this episode, former chairman of NBC, the founder of Reveille, the man that executive produced The Biggest Loser, won Golden Globes and Emmys for The Office, Ugly Betty, The Tudors. was great to catch up with him. We recorded this at Ben's house, and I just got to give you a little bit of a warning. Uh, the interview is fantastic, but we did experience around, I don't know, 45 minutes into the interview, some technical difficulties. Uh, Ben's precocious, awesome son, Meyer, came into the room in Ben's house where we were recording, uh, an impromptu pillow fight and wrestling match ensued. And somewhere along the way, Ben's microphone got turned off. So... I didn't want to leave all of the things Ben and I talked about at that point on the cutting room floor because he had a lot of interesting things to say about his time at Electus specifically. So it's still in there. You can hear Ben, but you can't hear Ben all that great. But I didn't want to kill it. I didn't want to edit all of that. So uh, bear with us. And look, I'm not going to throw five-year-old Meyer under the bus. I'm not blaming him for why dad's microphone wasn't working. Primarily because there's a good chance I could be working for Meyer one day. Uh, So it was great to sit down with Ben and catch up. And best of all, the biggest tease. Uh, I think you guys are going to find interesting what Ben had to say about what was the first show he greenlit when he got to NBC. And the ramifications of that green light for, I don't know, the history of the world. I'm not being histrionic here, folks. The first thing Ben greenlighted when he got to NBC, for better or worse, depending on which side of the political fence you sit on, had ramifications for the rest of human civilization as we know it. Okay, spoiler alert. It was Celebrity Apprentice. Enjoy the show, everybody. It's like a homecoming. I haven't yeah. been here in, in three years. I know. It's good to see you, It's bro. amazing, man. And Jimmy Fox is back. The multi-Golden Globe winning, Emmy winning mentor of mine, Ben Silverman. Thanks for having me. Of course, Jimmy. It's good to see you again. I'm glad my dad was here for you to say hi. I saw Stanley. Stan the man in the house, which, moving west. Which was great. Uh, so normally I start from the very beginning with like childhood and where you were raised, but I know just knowing you like I do, I'm not going to have much time with you. So I'm going to skip past all that. Whatever you need, baby. I just want to get to, you know, young Ben Silverman, fresh out of Tufts, comes to L.A. Yep. Why entertainment? Why television? Like, why did you want to focus on this from the jump? I always wanted to be in the media business, and my mom wasn't a singer and theater producer turned uh, cable executive and worked 
at USA Network with Kay Koppelvitz and Bonnie Hammer in 1.0 when they were in Glen Rock, New Jersey, and uh, transmitted their signal over a transponder. <laughs> and then um, my dad is an avant-garde chamber music composer, and the arts were in my blood. And I always knew I wanted to be in show business, and I grew up as a latchkey kid because they got divorced when I was very, very young. And basically was raised by I Love Lucy and, right. you know, Family Ties and Cosby Show and eventually Hill, Hill Street Blues. And I remember the seminal moment of me begging my um, parents for my own TV so I could basically, like, stay up all night watching television from morning till night um, as a little boy. And always loved it and thought it was an amazing medium to build business tell stories and reach people and um, always knew I wanted to do it. So in college, is that when it hit that you could actually make a career of it or when I was like seven, like that I was it. it. That was always it. Always it. Knew I would be in show business. Not, nothing, nothing else even entered the picture except for the foreign service and diplomacy, which is why I went to Tufts and Fletcher in Boston Okay, because they had the best international um, department. So I was like either going to be a civil servant and, Join the Embassy Corps or um, go in entertainment. That's You've been a good Tufts man. Yeah. You have been. I, one of my earliest memories of working for you mm. was somebody proposed having a meeting at, like, the Harvard Club in New York, and you were so offended. Uh, and you were like, like, tell him I'm a Tufts man. Yeah, exactly. Early, early on. Yeah, loved the school and, uh, and was a happy recipient of their P.T. Barnum Award with Steve Tisch. Um, which was which was a great honor from the alma mater, but o- always loved it. I see. You it come you come to L.A. Drove to L.A. Did my junior year, um, d- came out to do interviews um, in L.A., knowing I wanted to be here. Graduated school uh, was so poor, could not afford to rent my own place or um, even own a car. My grandma gave me three thousand dollars on graduation. <laughs> And I ended up having to date the daughter of a car dealer, Nicole Reed, so that I could, you know, afford a car for three grand. It didn't have a stick shift that worked. I had to drive, like, with my foot on the clutch and on the brake at the same time. Where did you crash out here if you couldn't afford an apartment? At Mark Williams' house who in on Iredell Street, who was my college roommate. And we had a bo- – we borrowed – we basically drove a rich girl's car across – the country so that we could get our stuff west and okay. not need to hire a mover or ship anything loaded up her volkswagen jetta and drove it from medford back and then i crashed on mark's couch for my first two and a half months here running around getting uh interviews and basically every place I'd, i would get so hot no air conditioning in this car it was like a honda accord without ac and a broken clutch and I, it was so hard to drive that I would be sweating through my clothes, and I'd drive into the lots, literally in my underwear, for these meetings, and put my suits on in the parking lots of of the studios as I would go interview with various people. And ninety nine percent of the people didn't have any um, job uh, for me, but I would always leave asking, "Well, you may not want to hire me, but do you know anyone who would?" That or was your that, thing. Yeah, that was what I learned from you yeah. early on. You would say, "Like, I would leave every meeting and get another meeting and get another meeting." Get that a was referral. A, exactly. Yeah. Didn't your mom? Didn't Mary give you like her personal Rolodex? Yeah. So, and I went. To, I called my mom, and uh, she had worked at um, a bunch of the different cable channels as they were starting uh, USA and programming Lifetime, the BBC, and she was at the BBC at the time doing children's co-productions out in New York. 
and I um, and I went to her office and I xeroxed her Rolodex and basically <laughs> cold called um, half the people on the list who had California addresses. And what was the first gig then? And the first job I got offered was at CBS, which was actually a job I had interviewed with initially during my first trip out west during my junior year, and um, worked with a woman named Marion Davis in international program development. Huh. And then a guy named Jonathan Levin, who ran drama development, which was a department that Marion also was in, um, was nice to me, but also didn't really like Marion that much. And so he would drag me into meetings so that I couldn't do the secretarial work I was supposed to do. And I was a terrible typer. And I ended up being a pawn kind of between them. But mm. I got to meet a lot of great people because I would sit taking the notes in the drama pitches. Right. It's so weird that like the, the international perspective found you early. You know, you studied abroad, right? When you were in college yeah. and your mom worked for the BBC and then you get your first gig out here and it's an in international television. And that became a huge theme of your entire career and how you made an impact in the business initially was when you went to the UK for William Morris. Exactly. And international, um, programming and content and was always a focus of mine uh, as an opportunity to be in a slightly different lane. Right. I wanted to get as close to the creative process as I could, but I saw gaps in how the business worked that right. I could maybe take advantage of and, um, and did later on. Well, we'll get there. So I want to get to when you found your mentor or I don't, I don't know. Would you classify Brandon Tartikoff as a mentor? Yeah, Brandon Tartikoff was definitely a mentor. And before before him, I actually met Barbara Corday, who right? Had, who had hired me um, to be an assistant at her production company, Can't Sing, Can't Dance Productions, which was a company based uh, at the time on the Warner Brothers lot. And I was getting tired of working as an assistant at CBS, and they were greenlighting really strange programming, including. You know, shows like Thunder and Paradise about a, a Hulk boat, Hogan. Hulk Hogan on a boat. Yes. And I was like, this isn't really the kind of stuff I like to do. And met Barbara, who had co-created Cagney and Lacey, was a dynamic, extraordinary woman. And she hired me. And in the course of our first day, she said, you know, we should really uh, announce that you are part of the company, she said at lunch. And you know what? I think instead of calling you the assistant, let's call you the coordinator. And I was like, okay, great. It was this, me. Wait, this is the first day. The first day. And, and it was me, her, and a woman named Suzanne who was her assistant. And, and it was our, the three of us in, in this bungalow. And she then, uh, a little after she had gone out to lunch and came back, she said, you know what? I was really thinking about it. We should really call you the manager of development. It's, it's a better gig. <laughs> And then before she left at the end of the day to go to go to her business dinner, oh come on! She she said, you know what? Let's call Variety tomorrow, and we should call you the director of development. And so in the course of my first day <laughs> working for Barbara, she had promoted me three times, and I was a 22 year old director of development working at a three person company. So it was it was awesome, and she really accelerated my career. And then she got named the um, president of New World Entertainment, which was a Got Ron it. Perlman roll-up uh, where he was basically putting and going to put together all these different pieces, and she was the first part of it. And she brought me over, and even though now we were at a company 
of 2000 and a publicly traded one at that. She said, you know what, Ben will still report to me, even though I'm now the president of this large company, and remain director of development. So I got totally grade inflated (laughs) by Barbara and put into a much bigger job at a really young age. And then um, Ron Perlman brought in Brandon Tartikoff. How how long into that? About kind of seven, eight months into that job. Uh, To Barbara's surprise, Brandon was brought in um, as the CEO and chairman of the company because they had started to acquire Marvel Comics. They acquired Genesis, a syndicated distributor, and other elements. And um, in the chauvinist time, went with the the man. And Brandon... and oh, so Brandon, Brandon's assignment there pushed out Barbara. Pushed out Barbara, but on her way out, Barbara told Brandon, take care of this kid. He's, wow. a, re- he's a real star. And she was so uh, sweet and gracious and really, you know, made sure Brandon would focus on me, even right. though I wasn't his, Yeah, you know, which always can be tricky. So I ended up then reporting to him. Right. Now, as his director. As, as a direct for And now I'm 23. Yeah, yeah, you're 23. You're so green. Yeah. Even though you had consumed a ton of television in your yeah. life, you didn't know the names and, and the vernacular at that point I how knew, the town I, ran. I knew it. I knew it. Okay. I knew it pretty well. Did you because, know Brandon? Uh, no, I knew exactly who he was. Okay. I had read an article about him in New York Magazine okay. as a kid. So he'd I, already been kind of like I, a, My mom subscribed me to Variety when I was in high school. You're she, kidding. Because I knew I wanted to do it. So I went to Jeez. Nappy with my mom once. I went to a nappy as a teenager or maybe a college student. So I always You were like the Tiger Woods of television. You were like groomed from a young age. I was groomed for it. I remember writing my senior college math paper because I had like placed out of the math class and that on ratings and how ratings worked. (laughs) And then I had like a sample grid. I'd made a kind of sample schedule. And then during college, I worked at Warner Brothers every summer for Eric Frankel and Ed Blyer okay. in New York City. So I had already had three full summers of, uh, of paid internships. Of having your eyes on the at, town and knowing the at names Warner and Brothers. the landscape exactly. and all Exactly. And so, I used to write letters on Eric Frankel and Ed Blyer's behalf where I would go through the ratings of the finished movies and TV shows that they would sell – to cable channels and networks, which right. is basically how I got the job. My mom had probably made some deal to get me the job. And the um, and I would write a letter to all the network presents. Av- so a repeat of a Warner Brothers movie would air on a cable channel, and I would write the letter to the president, vice president, and director on behalf of Eric Frankel and Ed Blyer okay. saying congrats on the huge ratings, basically on the show we sold yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, right. And so I got to know who everybody was okay. by writing those letters too. Was Brandon fresh out of NBC? Brandon was just at a Paramount. Paramount. Yeah. So NBC had been years earlier? NBC had been years earlier. Got it. So from NBC, he went to go run a film studio. Or was it Paramount TV Studios? Film studio. It was the film studio. Yeah, and and this was his kind of return to TV. So how was was Brandon at that time when you met him? He was In terms of being a mentor, did he care to to teach? He was more of a um, a mischievous kind of uh, grinder a little bit. But I know he saw... A twinkle in my eye that he recognized from his own eye, yeah, as a uh, you know New, New England educated um, lover of television and the business, 
And he kind of took me under his wing just in including me that tightly in his orbit as yeah. a young person really elevated me and listening to him and the osmosis of just paying attention to somebody like that. And he taught me some great things about yeah. how the business worked. And also he was so incredibly creative. Um, it showed me that you can really drive the business through creativity as well. He didn't yeah. like just do the business or right. just do the creative. He yeah, was totally. really, really a two brain, two side of the brain guy. D- d- at that point, as you're starting to develop who you're going to be as an executive and you're starting to think of what your style is going to be, did you pattern a lot of your pitch room style off of how Brandon handled the room? I think that he probably more than anyone else influenced me in that regard because he was a passionate seller of his ideas. And he absolutely loved whatever it was uh, we were taking into the marketplace from rollerblading cops to night courts, he 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 loved the loved the content. All right, so you you grow there under Brandon's wing, and then you get to Morris. Did you get poached by Morris? Did they notice knew, you in pitch I rooms? I was done with L.A. Actually, I had like a crisis of consciousness. I was friends with River Phoenix, whose family had given him the name Phoenix, literally at the symbolism of the rebirth. And we had just had the earthquake in L.A and the riots, and then there were fires, and I was kind of freaking out about the world as a young man having his first kind of, you know, mental awakening, and um, was really convinced that L.A. was like hell. It was like Sodom and Gomorrah, and I was being reminded at all turns how bad it was, and then when Phoenix literally died outside the Viper Room, I was like, the Vipers of L.A. have killed my friend River. And then I started to take the motif from further. Like all the names of the restaurants, bars and clubs were hell motif. It, there was red, there was the gate, yeah. there was all this thing. And I saw all this stuff and I was like going a little crazy. So I'm like, you know what? I got to get out of here wow. and look for something else. So I got recommended to William Morse because I used, I knew some of the executives there I'd met through my mom at the BBC right. But And so they knew I, like, had some connection to International because his mom worked at the BBC once. And then I also... Which is sometimes all it takes on a resume. Uh, exactly. You know, <laughs> yeah. just connected. And that wasn't on mine, but they had met me through her once. And, right. then, and then I would go to MIP for Brandon mm. to basically sit at the booth while he was there and take all the pitch meetings because oh, wow. he wouldn't want to sit in them. So he also groomed your MIP. International. So he yeah. brought me there and put me there because he... He knew I also had some connection and right. interest, and because I spoke French fluently. That's right. And so he really um, – Which, by the way, I have seen you at a meeting at MIP yeah. catch somebody off guard exactly. with your French yeah. where they're talking across the table and they don't realize you speak French. Exactly. Yeah, nailed them. Yeah. Nailed them. Yeah. yeah. Dude yeah. was talking smack from across the table. Uh, exactly. And then nailed. you just like out of yeah. nowhere turn into Gerard Depardieu. Yeah, no, it's a great, <laughs> it's a great it's amazing. talent. It's a good sneaker talent. Sneaky talent. But um, but I'm in uh, – so Brandon had set me up in that way. So I I had in a very small way built a little bit of that uh, credibility. Right. And then got um, brought into William Morris to basically work on international. Right. Initially and ended up going over to their London office, Who which said is what I was hired for. That was what you were hired for, to go to London? Jerry Katzman and uh, Arnold Rifkin – Wow. were the main architects of it. Um, and then um, on 
the more dated Dale was a guy, Cassie and Always and Rick Hess. Cassie's a big indie sure. movie producer, and Rick's over at EMC now, CAA. And um, Rob Lee, who was yeah. the uh, TV packaging guy, were kind of my two guys. Sure. But was in who was in London before you got there? The London office was really a small kind of rabbit hutch of an office that serviced the local uh, British talent for the British market and occasionally would land somebody who could travel internationally. I think the biggest clients at the time were an aging Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif. Right. So this, uh, is of the, the office. so this is really interesting. So at the time, the game is really to rep these pieces of talent and see if we can bring them. Uh, yeah, it was more, it was the farm club. It, it was wasn't club. it wasn't optioning shows. It wasn't repping companies from the UK and selling their stuff. No, there. not at all. And what I had discussed with Morris was let let me go over there and see if there's a packaging business to be built. Yeah. And I started looking at the the local market, but I also recognized how the international market was basically underwriting the American IP and stories and licensing rights for short windows on these big American projects and i thought that the europeans could leverage their ip into ownership stakes and the ability to become a studio um and retain more rights or also i was thinking more about co-financing and co-productions and coming early to the process we now see that everywhere but did the initial wave of kind of one hour syndicated dramas with a French partner, a German partner, an Australian partner, and an American partner. Which later you would replicate for the Tudors. The Tudors, and then obviously when I was running NBC, I did a ton of those kind of deals too. So um, had started with that in mind, and then I turned on the lights and recognized, oh my gosh, there's also all this incredible reality television being produced here, and there's a great opportunity with that. So started on the scripted side with the big one-hour dramas like Nightmen, which was a uh, comic ca- character, and then and random movies um, like Rogue Trader with Ewan McGregor. And then I segued into finding the great IP for them to leverage things like Cracker right. and Prime Suspect. Right. And, and then the, the third became the – and built those companies literally into kind of global powerhouses. And then the independent sector and started to find and represent companies like the BBC with things like Weakest Link. And right. then went over to Holland with Mark Itkin. We signed up Endemol, Heidi von Bakov and John Demol and had Big Brother and all those shows. And then the biggest for me was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Yeah, tell me the story of this. That's what I wanted to get to. Because yeah. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is really the one that sticks out from that generation, that huge boom. Yeah. Like the UK invasion well, on reality TV. And that was a overnight, like honest to God, overnight sensation in the US. It was live and everybody in the country was watching. How did the sale come to be? Well, I was in a meeting with David Litteman, who was running the ITV at the time, asking him what he had coming up that was good mm. because they weren't the owner of the production companies at the time. They were just the commissioner and the various um, studios that supplied them, Carlton, uh, London Weekend Television, Granada, etc., were all indies and tended to own the rights. And he said, well, I have a new – there's a new show coming that we're really high on that looks really good that we're piloting now that I, I'm very confident will bring the series. And I'm like, and how – and what is it? And he said, who wants to be a millionaire? And I thought, who doesn't? Hey, <laughs> what's the – that is such a great title. What, what What's the idea? And he said, well, we're going to air it as a two-week stunt. I'm like – Who's the producer? Who owns the rights? He goes, it's this man named Paul Smith at Celador. I immediately left his office and cold called Paul Smith. Okay. And went over 
and met with him and pitched him on doing this in America and representing him. And it hadn't even aired yet in the UK. Had not even aired yet. Okay. And at the same time, there was a Brit in America named Michael Davies who right. they were beginning to do a lot of work with because he leaned into the formats and have, being a Brit knew there was great stuff in the UK to mm. do. And I brought up Millionaire to him and he said, I'm already aware of it. I just called Litteman and heard about that show. <laughs> also, let's do it. And we proceeded to um, really focus on delivering it to ABC. And Michael Davies ended up having to put his neck on the line to Paul Smith say, I will quit my job to produce this show. That's how much I believe in it to get Paul over the final hurdle wow. of doing it there. And it made Michael a multimillionaire and made Paul a centimillionaire. Yeah. And it made my career. Um, ABC was the most familial and really most committed to airing it the way we wanted to air it, which was two weeks in a row. Right. And all the other networks had looked at it and thought, maybe this is interstitial programming. Maybe this is we'll do a like pilot. once a week. Maybe we do a pilot. And ABC, through Michael's conviction, was all in. They kind of committed to the two weeks, but also with a pilot step. And what we did is we had Regis Philbin, who was a William Morris client, come to London to actually shoot a little uh, Oh, that's the, how Regis came into yeah, it. Yeah, Millionaire Stage. So you used their stage exactly. in London, did like a test show. Exactly, and we packaged in Regis. And then they gave you the two weeks. Exactly. Unbelievable. So yeah. now you So made- I'm off on vacation in uh, the Bahamas with my friend Charles Finch and um, hanging out, and I'm talking to my assistant now, my partner Howard Owens at the time, and uh, I'm like, tell me the ratings, how how – how were they, you know, on a landline from the Bahamas? And he said, well, it, you know, it looks like 24.5. I'm like, what? There's no way it's 24. <laughs> you know, there's there's not a chance. You don't mean 24. Do you mean 2.4? You know, what? and he goes, no, 24. I'm like, really? What the, what the fuck? And then, and then I didn't talk to him the next morning. And I, I'm like, a guy runs into the house. Like, he's tried to reach me so much. He's called, like, a local hotel, like, to track me. Down and he goes, you you don't understand. Your phone your phone sheet is blowing up. Michael Eisner's on your phone sheet. Jerry Katzman's on your phone sheet. Walt Sifkin's on your phone sheet. The you know Michael right. everyone in that variety's on your phone sheet. Holiday Reporter, you know everyone. I'm like, well, what were the ratings last night? And he goes, 26. And I'm like, oh my god, my career is is totally changed. And now you're the they're like, who is this Ben Silverman guy in London that's you, wrapping up all of these shows and packaging? And them? I was representing everything. If it right. had an accent. We were packaging and putting it together. So Weakest Link followed that? Weakest Link, Queer as Folk, Big Brother, Chains of Love, um, Fear Factor. I mean, you name it. We were were putting it on the air. We we at certain – there was no question that every single night of the week we had a show on TV. The Mole. I mean, everything. And at this point, I feel like this is where, like, the Ben Silverman I know was, like, born. Because let's be honest. When you're on London and – there's hardly anybody out there. You know, any, there's no bosses coming by the office every yeah. day. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. So you were really your own boss running that London office. I was my own boss. So you Absolutely. had a full autonomy. And when you've got your name on the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire package, yeah. you, you're going to get away with whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to do. Totally. I, heard, I heard a story the other day, somebody anecdotally, which mm. I get these stories all the time about you. By oh, the way. yeah. I love People it. love to share stories. Was Somebody told me that you booked a private jet for Regis to get – 
somewhere. I don't, I don't know why or where, but it was the fly Regis somewhere. And Morris was not aware of it. was not told. It was just booked. No, that's not a true, that's not, not a true, true story. story. No. Okay. That didn't happen. Cause never. I get told this I was all the so time. Cheap. Oh, you were? Yeah. Yeah. No, never, <laughs> never. You know, that's, that's not true. Okay. No, it's, no, it's good. The myth, the myth has many stories. No, <laughs> yes. I'm not, I'm not that guy, yes. but, but, um, but I was all over the map and I would go where, Ever I thought the business was. So right. I, I would go to France to try and sign Gerard Depardieu and like meet with him in some kitchen. Or I would be, you know, in Germany with Whoopi Goldberg pitching shows, trying right. to do co-productions, or I'd be, you know, looking for format rights. You know, I right. never I never told anyone where I was going or right. what I was doing. I just did I set my own calendar. I'd come to LA and stay at the Lermitage for two weeks at a time. And, and they didn't even know you were in town. You, you know, they, they'd know I was in town, but, but they, I would show up and tell them, you know, right. would get a great guest office and, and they'd give you a car. They used to have their own fleet of cars then. That's right. So I'd come in to LA for two weeks. He, you know, every two months I'd come for two weeks to sell the shows. Basically I'd go right. to London, put the shows together. Then I'd come to LA bringing the partners uh, we were representing and go go sell them wait so you you eventually left london you went to new york left for morris and went to new york i saw what was happening with digital delivery you know branded under the tivo name and what was happening in dot-com 1.0 and thought that the advertisers were going to get disintermediated so the same way that i totally believed and was passionate about building the format market and think i really helped create the whole indie marketplace supported Pact as it lobbied for 25% commission rate out of the big companies to go to the independents, yeah. force them, the system to feed rights into the independents. And those companies grew and built all three and, mm-hmm. and the ITV and all of that consolidation came through these independent companies retaining their rights and right. being able to exploit them through people like me showed there was values. And then a lot of them started to go public. So I was, I was really happy to have built that kind of business and ecosystem so early on and went to New York at Morris thinking I could leverage that IP into conversations with the brands and started to work with brands, magazine brands like InStyle and Maxim and translating them to television um, as a kind of consultant partner of theirs, and then brands like Anheuser Busch and eBay, and right. work on their content strategies, and so was doing a lot of work at the convergence of where the formats and IP yeah. could come out of the international marketplace, and then I could package in advertisers. And everyone forgets, but the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire had Coca Cola. I'm sorry, had um, AT and T and McDonald's as primal partners you That's would right. you could play the game with them right and then uh obviously um that that kind of was a, a big part of the next phase of my career right and those experiences you had kind of being a one-man band at morris and running your own business at some point being the entrepreneurial spirit that you are and seeing this void now and having these relationships internationally you had to start thinking I can do the same thing I'm doing now, but run my own production company and be a producer acquiring these rights and getting advertisers in on my shows from the development stage. And I don't have to be making 10% of 10% or whatever your bonus is as an agent. I can own everything. Totally. And more to the point, I can drive the creative process because as an agent, you have to step away, even if it's the thing you've created soup to nuts. And I really wanted to be that much closer to the creative process and a principal, right. not just an advocate. 
And so that drove it more than the financial uh, yeah. appeal of it, actually, was the creative ambition of it. But I knew in order to have creative output, my watching my father as an avant-garde chamber music s- composer struggle to get his work performed or commissioned, I knew I didn't want to be all artist and um, wanted to kind of blend it and find a way to have the business models drive opportunities to tell creative stories. Right. And a lot of times the more ambitious creative ideas required business models to get them done. Right. And, um, and so I, when I launched Reveille, why Reveille? Um, why the, why the, the name? The wake up call. It was a camp, um, a camp, uh, trumpet, you know, the camp bugle in the morning of the wake up call. The, and I knew that it meant different things in different languages. And it was the kind of, this company was going to wake up the industry. It was a little, little uh, grandiose for a thirty-year-old. So but, but, it, but it was it's Reve, which is means the same thing in in French, right. and the um, Revali in English, England, English. You know, it's it's different. The and old Reveille in in America. So, I I really love that the company name had that kind of power to it. So this is so this is where the Reveille Four. Are constructed. This is where yeah. you are pulling your your handpicked dudes from Morris, right, to come join. Exactly. You. It t- basically took all the guys who were my assistants to come join me. Right. So it was the four of us set up the office. Um, and who are those guys? How- Howard Owens, Mark Coops, and Chris uh, Grant were my guys, and we literally Chris was the secretary and the and the young one, and then Mark had just been promoted, and Howard had been promoted before Mark, but they were all my assistants, so I had kind of trained, and we set up the war room in the same building as we went to go uh, start Reveille, um, backed by Barry Diller at the time, and uh, and it was it was great, it was such a run, and I knew we were going to move west, and I remember. I'm hiring my girlfriend at the time's roommate, Terry Weinberg, to, <laughs> who was not even in the business. I think she was, like, making candles or something to go help get all of um, my guys settled. Right. And had her go to the um, – go check out offices and look around the lot for us initially and was able to get amazing bungalows on the – universal lot what was the relationship that with with usa networks because barry was overseeing usa so barry networks owned universe owned usa networks which got merged into universal as we were making the deal with Amazing. barry and then and then uh and then that then merged with nbc so it was so like a first look deal with nbc it ended up being a partnership that they took over a 75 25 partnership that they took over but I was able during the NBC Universal merger to convince them because they didn't really want to own or fund a company right. that I would handle the funding if they would give me the real estate and everything. And in exchange, I would buy back the piece and you did for that. No, for, in exchange for a first look deal right. going forward. So I basically traded a first look deal for the 75% of the company they owned. To own your company. And then you later would buy out and buy back Barry's equity in the company as well as the company grew well exactly well when i went to go so i i did three successive cycles of fundraising with barry uh diller also and he funded Reveille uh over five six years but then i left to go be the chairman of nbc right 
Well, right, when you you right. had joined. Now, before we get there, though, I mean, we're talking. And I'm not five just, years, four or five. Five years. years. Yeah. Which is crazy because I did the math today. Yeah. Electus was six. Yeah. Like it's crazy to think that Electus was longer. It was a longer run. Exactly. Revely, because we all talk about the Revely days. Because that it's was twenty years. Yeah. Right, and that was the start of like first ballot Hall of Fame career. I mean, this is yeah. an unscripted podcast, so I'll focus there. But mm-hmm. The Office. Yeah. Ugly Betty. Format out of Columbia, you know, again, yeah. touching into what you had done at Morris with international yeah. relationships. Tudors, which was completely your own development with Michael Hurst. Yeah, my idea, yeah. But yeah. On, on the unscripted side, I mean, huge shows, Biggest Loser, which I was thinking about this today. If you look at, like, the pantheon of giant broadcast reality shows, yeah. Biggest Loser has to be top three in terms of being a revenue-generating business beyond yeah, I mean, just a TV if you, show. If you look at that 1.0 wave with Survivor, Big Brother – and Idol. biggest loser, and then and then Idol, right? And the, and the, each network had one, right? Y- you know, and and then uh, ABC had Bachelor, right? Y- you know, and right. the, and those those were the the big the big mamas, and it happened uh, so quick though, so quick, it, so quick, and I mean pioneered by that format business I had kind of launched, and then but original so, shows, I mean Blowout, the restaurant, and then it, oh yeah, then created all these shows and the whole docu soap. Uh, we invented. And right. We had to get the brands to fund it. We did the club, basically yep. the salon, which was blowout, and the restaurant. Right. And uh, and pulled them all together with advertising partners. Everyone right. from Amex underwrote it. Right. Amex, Coors, um, Mitsubishi, Revlon, Lens Crafters. We were working with the Fortune 100, and also these emerging networks like Bravo and Spike. You know, in their in their 1.0 days when right. they didn't even have money to green light the shows we brought the money to them and help build their their networks and get advertisers to them and but biggest losers sold and date my mom and parental control right and nashville star which was one nashville of star was huge found miranda lambert yeah no we, we right. which was usa so we had the biggest one on bravo the biggest one on nbc the biggest one on um mtv you know we, we and, and at that time showtime and this is why like you know you were like my brandon from afar like mm-hmm. you were the only company at the time, that was doing both, but doing both really well. Yeah, and still, I would I think we're the only one who do it at the scale we do it and the level. Yeah. Like we have a Jane the Virgin and a Bear Grylls at right. Electus. You know, we have Biggest Loser and an office here at my new company. We're doing Charmed, Northern Exposure, and Apple's first show. You right. Know? So I always have blended the worlds and um, never thought about things the in terms of genre or. Right. You know, always thought about them in terms of the merits of the idea and, and the possibility of the audience to like it and engage. All right, let's get the NBC. So I start working for you on a Monday yeah. after having gone through five interviews and having waited like six weeks to hear back. And uh, I had to go take an interview at Mark Burnett's company. And it wasn't until you heard I was getting an offer from Mark Burnett that you offered me the job. No, the, but it's like, by the way, my first lesson in, in leverage. You get some leverage, exactly. I, I had another yeah. offer, and then that was the tiebreaker. Exactly, it was between me yeah. and one other person. Exactly. Had I not taken that other offer, who knows? Um, <laughs> that other interview, who knows? But anyway, I start working for you on a Monday. Yeah. I'm shadowing Matt Vasallo, who's now at MGM, you know, doing international over there. And I'm driving home that Friday from Reveille. Now, people need to understand that the Reveille lifestyle at work was people stayed till 10 o'clock yeah. in the bungalows, yeah, exactly. which blew my mind. Like I was coming off of a, a staffing agent at CAA where everybody left at 7 o'clock every night, right? Typical business hours. Mm-hmm. I'm there at Reveille shadowing 
Friday night, I've been there one week. I just completed my first five days. Mm-hmm. I haven't even spoken with you that week because I'm just sitting watching. Yeah. I get a call from my brother. Uh, I'm driving back to my apartment. He's like, hey, dude, uh, have you been online today? And I'm like, uh, not, not really. Uh, what's going on? He's like, well, there's this woman, Nikki Fink, and she runs this website. And she's usually really accurate about her news. And she just broke a story that your boss is the new chairman of NBC. And I'm like, no, there's no way. There's no, there's no way. Like this guy's been on, you know, like taking meetings. I haven't even seen him in the office. He's been on the golf course, like doing meetings at Hillcrest. There's no way he's the chairman of NBC. He's like, go home, read the release or read the announcement she just made. I'm pretty sure you're working for the head of NBC now. And that was over Memorial Day weekend. Yeah. It was a three day weekend. And it's ruined my weekend. My God, because she leaked that. It was a leak. The deal wasn't even done yet, right? But she, in typical fashion, ran with something that wasn't true or ready yet. We were in conversations, had no deal. How early were those conversations? So early. I think I had met Zucker that Friday. That's amazing. You know, like the Friday That's so irresponsible. It's so irresponsible. She would never check. And so poor Kevin Riley's dealing with it. The NBC people are dealing with it. I'm dealing with it. And by the way, Kevin had been. Barry Diller's like. I thought we were closing a deal because I was basically talking about leverage. I was negotiating with Barry while engaging with NBC because as an owner of Reveille, I had to really think about how to structure um, the deal. And also what the smartest way is to get a deal that was commensurate with where Reveille was in the market because even then people were already – trying to buy Reveille. Yes, of you course. Know, you know, and so I, I was I was thinking about all that and But and, if that was what was going through your mind at the time yeah. and if you were like stressed out and anxiety ridden, you did not show it. Because Tuesday morning rolls around. Yeah. I come in not knowing what to expect. I don't even know if I still have a job. Yeah, no, we ended up I right? negotiated all weekend long. I'm like pulling like dealing with five hundred people and so you guys doors. literally like wrote it on a napkin over the weekend yes. and got it done. Got it done. Got it done. I guess Anne an executive had to, had to pretty... deal with and had to deal with Barry, but didn't have all of Barry's part resolved either because no. he was a partner in the current Reveille. Yeah, there's no way. Not the initial two. Yeah, there's no way that that would be a while till that. Got and I remember solved. he he told me you are literally boarding the Titanic <laughs> to become a suit <laughs> once uh, again and be gra- grinded out. Yeah, exactly. Pretty prescient. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. so I come. It's 10 a.m. Phone rings. And keep in mind, I've not spoken to you really since I started yeah. working for you. And you go, hey, buddy. Yeah. And I go, hey. And there's like a silence. And you go, do you have any idea what you just got yourself into? Yeah, and I'm like, like, at that point, the floodgates are open. I'm like, no, what is going on? Yeah. And you, this, you know the one thing you said to me? You didn't walk me through anything, right? Yeah. In typical Ben fashion, you just go, welcome to the big time, baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, let's roll some calls. Yeah, that was it. That yeah, was exactly. the whole explanation. Exactly. And then like a couple weeks later, all of a sudden, we're on the Burbank lot. Yeah, we're moving in, mm-hmm. and I'm driving into the parking lot. I don't know where to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm like, is there a signed parking? Like, I don't know. So I call the office, thinking Matt is going to pick up, but you pick up, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh hey buddy. I'm like, oh hey Ben, sorry, I, I thought Matt was going to pick up. You're like, no problem. I'm like, sorry, I was just calling because I don't know where I'm supposed to park, mm-hmm. and you just go park in the front, bitch. <laughs> exactly. We run this place now. <laughs> yeah, I and, love like, that. and when people ask me like, <laughs> what was Ben like at NBC? 
the best example I can give is you were like Tom Hanks in the movie Big. Yeah, exactly. When he starts, like, has that dream toy company job. Exactly. That's what it was. Like, this was your childhood network. Exactly. And this was Brandon's network. Totally. If it had been ABC, CBS, or Fox, would you have ever done the deal? Would you no. have taken that job? No. I was interested in, in NBC. You know, that was the one. That was it. The legacy and the and the connectivity to, to my past. And, and at a real kind of creative DNA, I felt at the time. All that's kind of changed as, as media has changed. But even then, it was in its last gasp of being like a full-fledged yeah. broadcaster. Unfortunately, the strikes then roll in. We literally the go. The writer strikes hit immediately. Well, we had soft strikes, real strikes, right. and then honored strikes. So, boom, writer strikes. The directors honor it. The yeah. the actors then honor it. Then, then we're frozen. And yep. I'm in this job, unable to buy a single script right and put a single thing in development and literally with like spit and scotch tape have to kind of grab my brain and of where i was before and start greenlighting things straight to series and changing the model and shooting negative pickups and buying digital hours and going to south africa and working with other guilds and working right on reality shows and basically you know had to change how we did it and the entire time i was there we you know basically got to only do four shows in the traditional way right and yeah, the yeah, other yeah. kind of 30 and our budgets were cut you know by on the scripted side by two thousand percent as we well yes were, were start playing, playing for margin part, playing for margin and got, getting ready to sell but in that same time you have to help you have to sell readily you start getting pressure and word around town is like, well, he's got to sell his company because exactly. it's one of the biggest suppliers to NBC. Exactly. So you start getting heat. And that was kind of like when you first started getting heat from the press and exactly. like the haters. Exactly. was like, well, he should sell his company. Exactly. And then you sold the company. Unlike the president. Unlike the president. Unlike the president. Well, we're going to get, do you want to get to that right now? Yeah, unlike, unlike our friend, Mr. Actually, the first show I agreed. That's what I was about to say. One of the first shows I literally, I showed up at the office, looked at the ratings of, of everything. And saw the strike. I go, how did we cancel The Apprentice? Who would cancel The Apprentice? Um, we need to just update The Apprentice. And I remember, if you remember, I was like... This was one of your first calls. Yeah, my, my idea was like, let's do Celebrity Apprentice. So I called Burnett. Yep. And I said to Mark, um, shouldn't we do Apprentice? I have good news and bad news. Um, I don't want it canceled. I want to keep it on the air. But I want it to be two hours long. But I'm only going to pay you... Uh, a fee to make it for one hour. Right. And, and I had done this on the biggest loser. So you'll still make money, Mark, of course. because you'll make, you know, twice the amount of a fee, but you'll be able to edit it and produce the same amount of shoot days. I just want two hours of tape and his company and, distributed anyway. And so his company owned and, and produced it. And with, with, um, Donald Trump. Right. And he said, I, uh, I, I think it's an okay idea, but I don't think Donald will like it. Donald needs to be, the king, you know, I don't know if he'll yeah. like it around celebrities. I go, no, no, he'll be the king of the other celebrities. And he goes, well, if you can talk Donald into it, I guess I'm, I'm down. Is this your single greatest regret from uh, NBC? Uh, no, because now, because now the president of the United States, a hundred. I mean, That's what I'm saying. I mean, the show was yeah. gone. Well, we shall see. Well, well, time will tell. Right. Time will tell. I, I've always thought that if I wrote a book, I'd call it "It's All My Fault." Anyway, right. because the birth of reality television, green light, you know, the, yeah. you know, green lighting, celebrity apprentice and all of those elements. Oh. And now, and now my son comes in. Hey, Meyer. what's that Meyer? What is that? A pirate's outfit? 
Who got you that? We're joined by the next generation of the Silverman squad. We've got Meyer Silverman in here live, jumping around, being the big boy that he is. How old's Meyer? Meyer is, how old are you, Meyer Silverman? Five. Five is alive. And how old is your little sister? How old, how old's Madeline, Meyer? One month. She's not one month. How old is she? Nineteen. Yeah, she's a one month. Wow. Good job. That's a good older brother. Good older brother. No, keeping track of the kids. So, give me five. Right, so, so real quick, I'll get rid of it because I know it's family time. I'm stepping into it. We're, we're here at the Silverman home, just to remind you. So, uh, all right, so 2009, after two and a half years of corporate life at NBC, I mean, you were spent. You were corporate life, General Electric, I mean, at the time was owned NBC. You were not one for 8.15 morning meetings the day after the Golden Globes. So in 09, we get out. We start Electus with Barry. It's a next generation studio. It was digital. It was basically like, I think we talked at the time, it was like your opus. Like it was a collection of everything yeah. that you had your hands in. But this time around in 09, there's no first look deal. There's no studio deal. Yeah. Starting from scratch with no slate. Exactly. And in a very short, like three, first three year run, it was, you know, Jane the Virgin and Marco Polo on Netflix on the scripted side and a, and a show nobody watched called Killer Women on ABC. Fashion star, fashion star and Food Fighters and Mob Wives and all these other shows very quickly ramped up, not to mention the digital stuff with College Humor and all the other entities on the digital side of Electus. Being with someone who wasn't in the business was really not helpful to So, so in the in the corner first floor, and by the end of it, we're we're on the top floor, had the whole building. Two years in. Two thousand eleven, Chris comes in to be uh, what CEO, yeah. and and you're the founder and chairman. Exactly. How did that hire change the trajectory of the company or your personal time at the company? Well, it, it slowed it down because Chris just didn't love being ghettoized in the international and and felt like it was a deficiency when it really was his greatest strength. Mm-hmm. And so that was a frustration. And then Barry not wanting to really fully commit, it right? Was like a well, I, I can remember we would make deals like the talk was always we were going to be a full-fledged studio and finance shows and buy companies. And we would make these deals where we were in a position to be either the studio or split studio. And then we wouldn't lay the money down to do it. Yeah. Right. Right.
was frustrating and uh, disappointing. And it was also hard to be on a consolidated into a public company. Right. That's another thing that wasn't great for the production business. So when mm. I set up Propagate with Howard in the, in the new guy, he had begun it and then I reimagined it and, and changed it. I was very focused on us being the company on our own. It's our offices, we're separate. Our cash flow, our mechanisms, and didn't want any first looks or obligations, but wanted some commitments, and Howard had been able to negotiate real uh, commitments just to get the relationship with me, A, the network side going, but then we had all the autonomy and freedom to go. Right, so the initial backing when Howard made the deal for Propagate was money in from a &E networks with some puts connected to it to uh, launch the company initially, but no commitments whatsoever to a &E networks and you guys can sell anywhere and run things completely free. Right. And we were working on and very psyched about, um, you know, doing different shows. So the Apple show was a big, big deal with Jessica Alba, Gwyneth Paltrow, relying on Gary Vaynerchuk. Planet of the Apps made huge noise. First one they've done. I've read about this. Called Lore, which is great with Gail and her. Yep. With us, uh, Glenn Morgan uh, writing. Wow. Uh, and two documentarians uh, producing alongside. And so, you know, the majority of our revenue now is coming from the streamers. And then we've got amazing content coming on Lifetime. We've got um, Divas of Black Magic, which is hysterical, great uh, reality hour for Lifetime, debuting January 4th. And we've got. Um, I read about that one. Yep, Common Central. That's great. It's been less than a year since you got there. Like, you, you weren't at Real Screen last year. You know how I know? Because everybody kept coming up to me and asking me about what move you were going to make. Oh, yeah. I it, like, it was only rumors at that point. Exactly. And in less than a year, you just read off your entire slate. I was going to ask you, I mean. Like yeah. Are you having fun? Yeah, it's so much fun. Are you enjoying it? Right. Like worked with me or right. And I feel like people, you know, see and are aware of what I've done in the public diplomacy space and the, you know, conversation and you know empowering women and Latinos with shows like Betty and Jalen the Virgin and you know movies like Hands of Stone and you know making just premium great content with all these networks. And I love the individuals at Apple and Amazon, like two of the biggest coolest companies in the world. And Apple's 
partnership has been dynamic and exciting and I'm a big fan of theirs too. And the narrative of the backstory of having Eddie Q and I having worked on The Office back in the day is a great one. And it, it's a good time to make great stuff. Is it, and, that, and that's what's fun. I mean, it's hard. Is it harder than 2002 when you started Revelate? Yeah, it's harder on certain levels and easier on others. Um, harder to break through and have an, a clear-cut hit. Yeah. Everything is kind of a single. Right. Um, but uh, easier in the sense that um, I know everybody directly can get to most people with most great ideas and have built real track records with A-list talent. And it's really fun to work with Howard. I had a seven-year run together. I'm gonna ask the last question because my okay, last, last question because uh, we gotta go build a volcano with Meyer. Uh, why are you always late for meetings? Yep. That you kind of have to react and work towards what's in front of you a lot. And usually the meeting is about the next thing. Right. And you're in the middle of working on today's thing. The thing, and yeah. Thing. And so you're going to be 10 minutes late throughout the course of that kind of day. Well, I think. Even when you double book, like I do also. The double booking. That's what I wanted to get to. Yeah. I, I love a triple, triple lunch, quadruple breakfast. And, and a quadruple dinner. dinner. Yeah. yeah. You got them. I think it's a small miracle we pulled this off. Thanks, dude. Love you too, man. Thanks, man. Thanks, buddy.